The dead man lay, as dead men always lie, in especially heavy way, his rigid limbs sunk in the soft cushions of the coffin, with the head forever bowed on the pillow. His yellow waxen brow with bald patches over his sunken temples was thrust up in the way peculiar to the dead, the protruding nose seeming to press on the upper lip. He was much changed and grown even thinner since Peter Ivanovich had last seen him, but as is always the case with the dead, his face was handsomer and above all more dignified than when he was alive. The expression on the face said that what was necessary had been accomplished and accomplished rightly. Besides this, there was in that expression a reproach and a warning to the living. This warning seemed to Peter Ivanovich out of place, or at least not applicable to him. He felt a certain discomfort, and so he hurriedly crossed himself once more and turned and went out of the door, too hurriedly and too regardless of propriety, as he himself was aware. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the movie more than the book. We are recording this episode on Friday, March 10th, 2023. Welcome to episode number 69, where we will be discussing the adaptation Living. I am your host, Will. With me to talk things over is the paper pushing, file piling, and busy bureaucrat, Mr. Eric himself. Say hello to the people eat. Hello. Welcome to all my worker bee drones. Let's uh, put our heads down. Circle back, follow up, hit the ground running, all push, the good stuff. Push other departments. Yeah, that's how we do it. This is how we. This is how we roll. I love it. I love. I love the uh, aspect of like not getting things done but being busy. You just like moving your trackpad yeah, to keep yeah. your teams on green. Have you seen these things now? They actually have electronics where like it's like a Roomba but for your mouse pad. Yeah. How amazing is that? I think that's laziness personally like if you're gonna do that but the person be present who, but the person who did that is a genius yeah. who made it yeah yeah, yeah. he should no, be i think it's great given an award or something yeah i mean but for if me, you have that you probably have a problem i like to have it on my phone and then turn off my phone's like blackout feature so it just mm-hmm. never closes mm-hmm. so you just keep teams open and your phone just stays open and you're just always on green even if you're gone you know what i mean yeah oh i see what you're saying like it never idles sometimes you gotta like pull it down to let yeah. it refresh but yeah. i've actually given up i, I like I was offline for like hours today. Nobody messaged me. Were you on yellow or are you still on green? I was like black. Wow. That's not, you have to pay for that, but <laughs> it's a different <laughs> it's feature. Extra, extra stuff, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so before we talk about the novel here, we're going to uh, talk about some fast facts. So the novella, uh, The Death of Ivan Illich, was written by Leo Tolstoy, um, giant of the Russian literature. Uh, persuasion uh, author of Anna Karenina and War and Peace first published in 1886 so very long time ago considered to be one of the masterpieces of his late fiction has a good reads of 4.12 uh, the movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2022 and had a limited theatrical release in the US uh, in late December uh, 2022 and then uh, the film was directed by Oliver Hermanus who has directed films such as Mafi, Beauty and Shirley Adams uh, the film was written, the screenplay, excuse me, was written by Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, who is actually more more known as an author than a screenwriter, but uh, his books include The Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go, Clara and the Sun. Um, film stars Bill Nye, Amy Lee, Lou Wood, 
that's a weird name. I want to say Amy Lee Wood. It's Amy Lou Wood. Excuse me. Alex Sharp and Tom Burke nominated for two Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Bill Nye and Best Adapted Screenplay for Kazuo Ishiguro. Rotten Tomato score 96%, Metacritic 81. So pretty, pretty good. I guess you have to have good scores to be uh, nominated, right? I guess not not always. Probably for this movie that no one saw. Yes. It's probably got to be pretty pretty like universally loved. Mm-hmm. That's probably true. No offense to loving, but I feel like nobody saw this. L- loving or living? Either. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to living. Correct. Which yeah. I think probably nobody saw. Yeah. I, I didn't look at the numbers, but I would imagine... Did we talk about this last episode? We might have. That it maybe... What? out earned women talking slightly. oh i can check it out I, I don't remember though i guess it didn't get nominated for best picture so usually if you're not nominated for best picture you don't really get the bump yeah that's true this is kind of just a one-off thing um do you mind giving us a quick recap yeah so i'm gonna do a i'm gonna double dip today um the death of ivan Illich is a novella that tells the story of a high court russian judge ivan Illich who one day develops a terminal illness and dies after several months of pain while basically locked away from his family in a bedroom. His fears of death and the worth of his life animate most of his thoughts in this primarily internal story. Um, and that's set in about present time that he wrote it, I think within a, a, a decade or two. And then living tells the story of a overwhelmed and overworked bureaucrat named Mr. Williams, who upon learning of his terminal diagnosis searches for and finds meaning in his life from the help of a local writer and a youthful ex-coworker. And this movie is set in about 1950s Britain. So that is the death of Ivan Illich and living. And if you want to triple up, there's another <laughs> film that's based on the death of Ivan Illich that living is actually technically based on for mm-hmm. the rules of the Academy and yeah. what it's adapted screenplay nomination is for. It's called Hiru. It was uh, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It came out in 1952 and it is a Japanese language film yes it is yeah we should mention that we are actually going to be covering all three of those uh stories mediums if you will pieces of art if you will if you will if you will (laughs) please do quiet quiet um so we're gonna be talking about all those today and kind of breaking down the differences between uh all of them because as we'll get into it the films are relative well i'm actually not gonna i'm not gonna give it away i'm not gonna say it one film is in Japanese, the other film is in English. That's the key <laughs> There difference. you go. That's, yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, okay. Eric, are you ready to play your favorite game? Two truths, one lie. Let's do it. Do you not apply? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, number one, <laughs> Akira Kurosawa received only one Academy Award nomination in his lifetime. Uh, number two, Kazuo Ishiguro pitched the idea to make living uh, to Bill Nye after a party they attended uh, in a taxi home. Uh, and then it, number three, Ikiro's spine number for the Criterion Collection is number 220. Eric, what do you think? So number three, I have literally no idea. I don't know what a spine <laughs> number is. Like uh, None of that means anything to me. Good. So I'll let you talk about that later. <laughs> uh, number two, the screenwriter pitched this idea to the star after leaving a party is pretty cool. That's kind of like mm. the like bohemian artistic life I would like to live. Just yeah. like, hey, do you want to share a taxi cab? Because I want to talk to you about something, and it's a movie that we're going to make, and you're going to get nominated for yeah. best, best actor, of course. Um, so that's awesome. It I is like, awesome. I like that's also like a a will special, which is like it wasn't after leaving a party. It was like 
coming to a party or like during a party <laughs> so let's let's it's a little more romantic if it's leaving together yeah because you don't know where they left to could have been together someplace probably or went maybe, to go work somewhere maybe know. to Seven Eleven. they get some nachos yeah. or like somewhere else <laughs> and then number one kurosawa received only one academy award nomination in his lifetime i could believe that that's also another one that like he could have received two and this mm-hmm. is like a, a will special there's two will specials and then a number three that i have no idea so perfect the academy typically didn't honor uh like foreign directors foreign films for a long time so one while it seems slow because he's like the one japanese director everyone knows uh might just be true because of the way the academy worked oh man <laughs> I, I have no idea i'm gonna say though that uh, number one is the lie. He received either less or more than one Academy Award nomination in his lifetime. Is this your final answer? Yeah. Did he receive zero? He probably received zero. Let's go. Give it me. Give it to me. <laughs> he was. That is. Uh, you are incorrect. That is true. He uh, did. He okay. received only one. Okay. Um. So he received one. I actually want to read this story out because it's kind of interesting. So he re- received his first uh, and only uh, Academy Award nomination as I find the paragraph here, for a film called Ran. So Ran won several awards in Japan, but was not quite as honored uh, there as many of the of the director's best films in the 1950s and 60s, 60s had been. The film world was surprised, however, when Japan passed over the selection of Ran in favor of another film uh, as its official entry to compete for an Oscar nomination in the Best Foreign Film category, which was ultimately rejected for competition at the 58th Academy Awards. Both the producer and Kurosawa himself attributed the failure to even submit Ran for competition for a misunderstanding because of the Academy's arcane rules. No one was sure whether Ran qualified as a Japanese film or a French film, uh, a French film due to its financing or both. So it was not submitted at all. In response to what at least appeared to be a blatant snub by his own countrymen, uh, the director, Sidney Lumet, led a successful campaign to have Kurosawa receive an Oscar nomination for Best Director that year, uh, which he eventually lost to Sidney Pollock for Out of Africa. Mm. So a little bit of Oscar history there. So if it wasn't for Sidney Lumet, he would have never had an Oscar nomination. I like that back in the day you could just like, I've decided I'm going to get this person nominated for an Oscar. I'm going to yeah. go around, kiss babies, whatever. It's probably a lot easier back then yeah. than it is today. But yeah. Yeah. Um, he probably had a lot of power as well. So, but he also received uh, the the Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement uh, in the nineteen ninety. So, but that doesn't count as a nomination because yeah. yeah. he just I, gets see that. I see what you did. I see you did that. So, <laughs> so yeah, there you go. And so, um, Ikiru's spiner is actually two twenty one. So that was the lie. So apologies for wow. that. But I want to. I want to uh, have you. The reason I put this in is because I want you to guess what number 220 was it was actually a failed little lens attempt failed like did we read part of it we read well you read i think you read it i read part of it and then something happened to the availability oh naked lunch naked lunch is 220 interesting so they're right next to each other huh uh... so now that we have criterion we can finally watch Naked Lunch. Oh, yeah. I'll have to see if it's on there. Because sometimes the collection means it's like uh, just a DVD. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So they, they print DVDs. Right. And make them nice. Maybe that's what the spy number refers to. Yeah. Okay. So you've seen the the like clips on Twitter or whatever when 
they invite directors into that little like yeah the little small closet closet thing. that's yeah. just full of dvds and they go crazy for that's probably what films. that is yeah you're probably right you're probably right but it could still be on criterion we can check it out yeah but Let's, i just thought you, that was funny you want to pause this real quick <laughs> yes check it out i don't want to read that book I'm good. i know my god I'm i done. think i tried reading it. i was like at 50 pages i was like yeah let me stop i'm good um so you are so you are a loser again so that's right but you get to redeem yourself here over under another of our favorite games here uh the number is 12.5 the subject is number of the number of akira kurosawa films included in the criterion collection over or under 12.5 so that's a lot that's a Mm -hmm. lot of films um i do know i watched a uh, on the Criterion channel, mm-hmm. a um, like a featurette on Akiru, and I know that this Akiru is his thirteenth movie. Is that right? And given that this is in nineteen fifty two, mm. and he was making movies into the eighties, I don't know how many movies he directed, but probably a, a quite a few. Maybe. And so, <laughs> so, given that the volume is high, I'm gonna say maybe perhaps a twelve point five, given the number of movies he's made, is like a quarter maybe even less as a percent so given <laughs> given all that <laughs> i'm gonna say over 12.5 this is this has been the most impressive analysis i think i've ever seen <laughs> from you you're absolutely right there we go it's 17 okay yeah that's a lot it is a lot um i think you might i didn't look i didn't check but i think he might have the most of all, all their directors so you feel like he's he's <clears throat> probably considered the best director of all time or like he's up the, there in the like Mount Rushmore ish. I think he's probably up there. Certainly in Japan. Um, it says here, I was just looking this up. Uh, he was named Asian of the century for arts, literature and culture by Asian week magazine and CNN. Um, so he is certainly, if not the number one, um, Japanese director, certainly like top two or three. Yeah. So I think you're probably right that he's probably on Mount Rushmore probably with, um, Spielberg? Ridley Scott and I was gonna say Spielberg. Denis Villeneuve. Probably like probably, uh, probably yeah. like Hitchcock, really. Mm, maybe, but Hitchcock he's, is British, so he's not. He's even British. American. Yes, yeah. So he's out. Yeah, who would who would be the Rushmore? The top four: Scorsese. He would have to be on there, right? Do you get? Yeah, I don't know. We should probably talk about this yeah. offline, but we'll, <laughs> we'll come have back. A, we'll come back with another episode. We'll come back with one. Um. Okay. Cool. So, oops. So thank you for listening to our favorite games, Eric Redeemed himself. Um, but before we continue on to the novella and the film, we have a quick, quick, quick ad by one of uh, our favorite sponsors doing a another ad for us. So take a listen. And we'll be right back. This episode of the Little Lens Podcast is brought to you once again by Dialar. Remember that white noise episode we sponsored when the fear of death was the primary motivator for the actions taken by the main characters? You thought that was heavy? Just wait until you read The Death of Ivan Illich. You'll be reaching for the sweet, sweet effects of Dilar, the only medication specifically designed by experts to assuage your fears of death. Dilar specifically interacts with neurotransmitters in the brain that are related to the fear of death. Every emotion or sensation has its own neurotransmitters, and Dilar, taken as a pill once a day, induces the brain to make its own inhibitors and can lessen your fears of death. You won't scream for two days while your whole family goes to the theater without you. Take Dialar and don't worry about it. And we are back. Thank you from that brief word from Dialar, uh, big supporters of the podcast. And they're back. Um, and they're 
they're not stopping their ad push. You know, they're really trying to gain some, gain some traction amongst our listeners. So when you have a product that good, I think you got to talk about it. You got to talk about frankly, it, frankly. Um, so. so buy some dial art and uh, feel better. Have a great time. <laughs> so um, now we're going to talk about the literature, the novella, The Death of Ivan Illich. Uh, before we get into the details of the novella, um, we're going to talk about our favorite segment here, Pitch Me Daddy. Eric, why adapt something like this into cinematic form? Unless you owe a ton of money to the IRS or you're the defendant in a lawsuit where the United States is the plaintiff, most people, I believe, fear death more than anything else. Um, and that's where today's source material comes in, Mr. Producer Will. The Death of Ivan Illich is a novella from one of history's great writers in his late period, mm-hmm. as we learned, mm-hmm. um, Leo Tolstoy, and almost entirely concerned with one man's physical death um, and life legacy. You yourself are a great producer, don't you care what people think about you and your films once you're gone? Don't you want to be remembered for doing not just good, but great things? We all do, which is what makes this story so universally powerful. Uh, we'll, of course, have to modernize it a little bit. But this story, in this story, the main character literally squirms and rebels in the face of death. And I think as long as we can make him a more active participant in his own story um, and not a cantankerous, bedridden, wasteoid, I believe there's a great part for a great actor in this, perhaps even Oscar worthy. Um, now there's a Japanese language proto adaptation that came out in 1952, but let's not worry about that. I heard it's good. Uh, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. It's fine. Um, people are just are ready to transcend death on screen and in the English language this time, I think. Do you? That's my pitch to you. <laughs> well, thank you for flattering me. I am a great producer. I appreciate that. That was actually the only thing I heard. <laughs> that whole spiel. Um, it sounds good. It sounds, I'm intrigued. Um, I always love taking, pieces of classic literature that aren't Jane Austen um, and bringing them to the screen. I will say you did briefly mention that this was already adapted into something in the 1950s by uh, one of the most famous. I didn't say that. <laughs> so I guess you have heard of the adaptation. <laughs> I, I have heard of it. Yeah. Um, Ikiru by Akira. Ikiru. Oh my God. Ikiru by. A, a, oh God. Ikiru. By Akira. By Akira Kurosawa. Excuse yeah. me. See, I know what I'm talking about, but. Because that's already been made and it's already regarded as a classic, yeah. Can we can we revamp it? What do you think of it? Can we what do we do with this? We don't want to ruin or tarnish something that's been deemed as perfection. Yeah, I don't really know how I actually feel about this kind of thing because I think you could certainly make the argument back in the day that, you know, the departed comes from this movie called internal affairs, which is a well-regarded movie. I forget where that movie is, is where that came out of, but the departed goes on to win best picture, best director, all these things. So for a while you could just make an English language. You could just remake Mm. a famous movie as an English language version. And it was fine. It was cool. We would roll with it. I feel like today people are more likely to watch foreign films in the original language with subtitles mm-hmm. and so I, f- I i mean i personally feel like you don't really need to do this mm. like you could just fire up that movie it is uh, you know from 1952 and that is 70 years old at this point mm-hmm. and so um maybe there's an argument that you would like set it in a different time period or whatever but as we'll probably talk about later there's a very specific reason why the movie why both movies are set in the 50s mm-hmm. early 50s um, and so you can't really do that with this one. You can't just make it 
I mean, you could, mm-hmm. you could just set it in 2022 mm-hmm. and call it a day. But I, I think there's a reason to set it in that post-war time. And so it just makes, it just makes the decision like kind of strange. I don't, I don't know why. Mm. I don't think there's a reason to do it because I think a bunch of people will just watch Akiru. Yeah. It's considered, I think a top three Kurosawa movie. Yeah. We both watched it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like anything has changed with work. In fact, like work is probably worse. So right. maybe in a way you modernize it by making it more of like today's work, which is digital always on. Mm. Whereas the movie here is more uh, like analog, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I don't have an answer for your question there. I don't know. I don't That's know why. Okay. That's all right. Do you have an answer? No, I do. I just <laughs> I don't I either. Just... I'm asking the questions. Yeah. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, well, I did want to ask you actually, like, would you be willing to veer from the, uh, you know what? Let's get into it in the movie section. I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring this question up later because I think it's more uh, in tune with with that conversation. So let me continue the book the literature conversation here. Uh, what parts of the novella were you excited to see adapted into the big screen? Yeah, this is an uh, you know last episode woman talking that was a difficult difficult question. This is also a difficult question because I feel like it's hard not to know that the these things are going to be dissimilar mm-hmm. i said that in a really difficult to understand <laughs> way i, I think I, I knew going in that the novella was not going to be adapted straight mm. and so when you read that and you look at bill nye playing a 1950s gentleman with a hat and a suit and then you read ivan illich you're like clearly this is not happening so yeah. for me um what i read the book for is like the pieces that got pulled out mm-hmm. And just for enjoyment. Right. Knowing that, you know, this is by a, a famous author. Um, so it wasn't necessarily what I was excited to see, but what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was two things. Number one, the self-awareness from the protagonist that he is dying. I mm-hmm. think that's kind of like the vital uh, story block here, just because that is the thing that is going to make him reevaluate his life and ultimately have this like conclusion that he wasted his life mm-hmm. doing living while, while living his life, he ultimately wasted it. Mm-hmm. So that self-awareness is key for me. And then two, um, I guess like I just mentioned, wait, go, I made a list and then I superseded <laughs> myself. It's just, uh, letting him have this reckoning mm-hmm. that with that, what he has done with his life. Um, and it's really like less of his, legacy because you think of your legacy as like what you've imparted onto people mm-hmm. and i think it is that but it's also just like at the end you do a final accounting of all the things and you ask yourself did i have a good life i think mm-hmm. that's one of the like most elemental questions people yeah people people think on their you know final days whatever um you know on your final accounting are you in the red or are you in the black should mm-hmm. you have lived love or acted differently and i think there's other things that we can get into specifically work um but for me, those are the two things that I pulled out of this. What did you, what do you think? What did you take from it? Yeah, I, um, so I purposefully, like I, I'd known that Akiru was previously adapted uh, from the story. Um, I didn't know what the relation was between Akiru living and the novella and reading the novella. And I had never seen Akiru. I'd never seen living. I actually hadn't even seen trailers. I didn't actually know exactly what it was about at all until reading um, and I realized, okay, it's an English actor. It's set in England. It's set in the fifties. So it's a little bit different from the 1870s or 1880s. Um, when, uh, the novella is 
is set. I thought, okay, there, it's it. I kind of assumed as I was reading that this was kind of how the movie was going to play out. Um, and I was excited to see the acting, particularly because the the character um, has such a dynamic arc. Um, and I love, I really love philosophical stories like this. They don't always hit, like, but when they do, they like it. Just it's a different. It's a different level, I think, um, and this one certainly hits it on the head for me. So I was interested to see that, see if that's something that they could pull off. Um, I thought, I actually thought, like, the story structure, like starting with his death and then like recounting his life, was completely doable from a film perspective. I didn't think like that really needed to change, and we'll get into the adaptations later. But I kind of thought that was kind of how things would play out, and I was excited to see that story um especially with his wife um the grumblings and the i don't know if it's it's probably stereotypical but like the the nagging wife god that was kind of her character um i thought you know that's probably not something today that people would necessarily want to see but um if you're set in a traditional you have it in a traditional setting that's probably something you can get away with um, yeah, I was just kind of excited to see that. I kind of wanted to see sort of the end if they would like, if they would stay true to it. And then obviously, um, things change a little bit, but, um, yeah, those things. Yeah. I, I mean, it is called the death of Ivan Illich and you sort of expect him to die at the end, but in the novella, just having him start dead basically yeah. mm-hmm. is sort of an upending of like, how are we going to know this guy? He's dead. Like, he's, right. He's yeah. not. It's kind of this like destabling, mm-hmm. destabilizing opening to mm-hmm. the novella, which I thought worked pretty well. Yeah, no, I agree. Did we, or did you, excuse me, uh, like reading it? I did. It took me a little time to get into the flow of it because some of the names were just a little foreign and mm-hmm. abrasive to my brain and how <laughs> everyone relates to each other at the beginning is kind of opaque. Um, but then mm-hmm. I feel like it just started to flow. Like It, it was a lot upfront. And then once you figured out what was going on, yeah. it, it became like progressively a smaller and smaller story. Mm-hmm. Like you start out with the, you know, the death, right? He mm-hmm. dies and all of these people are um, affected by it. And then by the end, it's really a story just like whittled down to him in a room by himself, mm-hmm. kicks everyone out and it's just him and mm-hmm. his like recollections of his life and his feelings. And so if, for me, it got progressively easier to read, um, which is, you know, I guess what you want. Yeah. Uh, but it, I thought it was it was really good. It was it was very funny. I'd say mm-hmm. it was pretty wry. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, when all of his subordinates learn that he's dead, they all think immediately about getting promoted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they're all thankful that they're not the ones who are dead. Right. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Yeah. Think of it that way. There's a they they describe his like young adult life which was it was all done with clean hands in clean linen with French phrases and above all among people of the best society. And consequently with the approval of people of rank. And I was like, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> he just like is living would be, I don't know, like a bohemian kind of like free flowing youth. Mm. And I read this last. So I was expecting kind of like the oh. stodgy droll people mm. from the movies and to get all this, I was like, Oh, this is like good, good life, good backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, exciting i think you know but it is ultimately upended because you're taken to believe that this life is like really good he's Mm -hmm. doing whatever he wants he's earning a bunch of money he's happy 
of course like the big turning point is that he gets married and he gets progressively less happy right 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 you know shout out marriage i guess <laughs> right um and it ultimately cl- like downshifts into just this claustrophobic story about a yeah. guy who gets more ill more ill-tempered needs more help looks worse mm-hmm. and he's just looking at all these like vibrant alive folks and thinking like god damn yeah what happened yeah and did i do things wrong yeah I liked it. This is actually the first Leo Tolstoy I've ever I've ever read. Have you uh, read anything? That Brian? might be true for me as well. I don't know if I've read any other of his. Did he not do? Who did Crime and Punishment? Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. I always get that and War and Peace mixed up. Oh, I've two read giants. Yeah, I've read The Snowstorm, which is one of his short stories from the 1850s. Oh gosh, Jesus. There's a lot of short stories here. I may have read another one, but yeah, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not like a big, like old school Russian guy. I haven't read a ton of them. You're more of a new school Russian guy. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's right. Anybody born like around the Putin era. Yeah. Any Gen Z. Yeah. (laughs) Some good ideas there. Gen Z Russians. Uh, No, I mean, I know there's a, there's definitely a collection of current writers who are really big on the Russians. Like I know George Saunders, is a really big oh, really? like studier of of uh like these like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky and, yeah. Um Elif Bot Botman, the okay. woman who wrote The Idiot. Mm. I think I'm saying oh, that. Oh, right. okay. Um she's like I another I think she's like ethnically Ukrainian or like second generation Ukrainian, but oh, really? grew up inspired by the Russians and did a bunch of anyway. Yeah, so yeah. there's like modern authors who really like follow the Russians and yeah. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, Gogol. Mm-hmm. There's one more that I'm forgetting, but it's not just Americans who are good at writing. Is that so, true? Well, <laughs> we could debate it. You know, I, I really, it's probably like more of a British thing. I feel like the Brits what? are like very like with the best, bro. Oh, best writers. Yeah. Who, who's like the most famous? Don't say Shakespeare, but who's the most famous? I guess besides Shakespeare, who's the most famous uh, like British author? Kazuo or like uh, this like uh jane austen probably probably jane austen uh i feel like they're not really known for authors i feel like i like ireland has has, is more known for you but they got joyce right yeah sally rooney sally but she's scottish or she's charles dickens jane austen tolkien i guess yeah orwell george Eliot. these are older people though whatever so modern british yeah contemporary yeah we're looking for who they got yeah we're looking for some. I mean, there's too many like modern writers now to like yeah, really yeah, yeah. know anybody. That's true. J.K. Rowling, there you go. Oh yeah, modern. <laughs> the cancel J.K. Rowling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, cool. Do you have anything else you want to say about the novella before we move on? Um, just that I really liked the ending because I, we'll probably talk about this in later sections. But I thought it was pretty good tragedy of just him having the knowledge theoretically to know how to rectify the like life he believes he wasted that he lived wrong um but being unable to act because he like once he figures it out he like almost immediately dies yeah so i thought that was like pretty sad tragic um you know life is wasted on the youth is wasted on the young kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. so i don't so know so figure it out people figure out your life before you die yeah and this guy's only 45 you know that's yeah like that's tough back then that was probably like part of the course right yeah, I don't know. I've been reading some National Geographics and they're talking about like um, people that were alive like tens of thousands of years ago who the old oldest age was actually like 40s. 
So I think maybe in really? 1883, they might be probably able, like 60s. Yeah, or just a tick older. Maybe, yeah. Well, there you have it. There you go. There's a novella. Read it. It's pretty easy. You can actually get it for free. Is that where you read it? Yeah. Just on. If you just Google, Google it. the death of Ivan Illich, read online. It's a PDF. Yeah. yeah. A bunch of um, colleges have like PDFs out there. Oh, do they? Can, yeah. It's um. It's also pretty short. It's like 80 pages, 80 something. Yeah. I read it in like two-ish hours. Yeah. So if you have some spare time, it's actually shorter than <laughs> shorter reading that than watching Akira. So True. just FYI. Longer than watching Living, though. Yeah, yeah just by a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Depends how fast you read. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So we're going to take another break before we get into the movie. Um, but we'll be right back. Mr. Williams, a little on the frosty side, perhaps. Not too much fun in laughter. Rather like church. What is it up? Small wonder I didn't notice what I was becoming. Dad, you're right. If only to be alive for one day. But I realize it. I don't know how. Do you think we should alert the police, perhaps? What would the police care if he's a couple of hours late for work? A couple of hours late for work. Who would ever have thought? This man, who until yesterday was living a shell of an existence. And I so very much do not wish to do so. And we are back. Thank you for listening to the trailer uh, to Living. So before we get into the movie, uh, well, the movies or the films, as some people uh, like to say, um, we have our most favorite segment here called Eric Learns or Something. Eric, take it away. Today, we are going to have some fun. We're going to talk about some hats. Uh, if you've seen Living mm. or Akiru, though this learning is specifically tailored to Living, you know that Mr. Williams... And many of his orderlies started the film by wearing a bowler hat. And then at a specific point, he gets a new hat, which is called a trilby. His young coworker, Mrs. Harris, who sees him on the street, barely recognizes him because he is wearing a different hat. Well, there's a reason. There's an importance behind this. Um, a bowler hat is traditionally semi-formal to informal and often considered working class. You can sort of picture a bowler in your head, right? It's like the kind of like domed, circ- more circular mm-hmm. Um, once he was taller. Yeah. And once Mr. Williams takes a break from his work and literally is no longer working class, he picks up a trilby, which has a shorter brim and is angled down in the front and angled up in the back. And this is a rich person's hat. And it Mm. represents the transformation from just another hat in the crowd to a hat that stands out in the crowd. Interesting. And he's richer because he's, uh, fuller, richer in life. Wow. You know, and he takes out a bunch of money. So literally he has a bunch of money in his pocket. That's pretty good. So there you go. How did you come across us? 
Did you just like why like why is this transition happen? Yeah, because in Akira, there's this. Well, obviously, this is based on Akira, but it's the same thing. He gets a. I think it's like a. It's a lighter colored hat. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if it's the like style. a white or beige something. Yeah, but it's it stands out a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a a moment in that, the very end, where his son is like holding the hat, like it's gonna tell him something. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of interesting moment where he's like trying to find answers in this hat that his dad like got, and it was kind of like a different person in. I was like, oh, well, there's probably like a reason for these hats mm. to change. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking up like what the hats were and I came across, I was like, oh, they're, well, they're bowlers. Obviously that's like the very common hat. And then it gets a fancier hat. I love that. So this might be one of my favorite learn you somethings you done. What kind of hat are you wearing? You're just wearing a normal. This is a, a fly brand five panel. So oh it's pretty super hipster. Yeah. Like the most hipster. <laughs> Would you wear a bowler hat? Like a top hat? I miss the days when we all had like cool hats like that. You yeah. had to travel in like hat boxes. Oh my god, that was a good. Those were good. <laughs> that and then, uh, I, what are those hats that are um, the Tommy Shelby hats? They're like the, you know, uh, what's that show on Netflix? The Cillian Murphy. Oh, um, P blinders. Yeah, the Peaky Blinders hat. I don't know what those are called. But oh, those like are the like, newsboy caps, kind of. Yeah, they've always kind of been around. They've never kind of been out of fashion but i feel like nowadays they're actually i don't really see that many people wearing them but i feel like they'd be more in I vogue our friend scott has a hat like does this. he yeah the, he right? would have a scott yeah isn't would. that the hat he it's has? like a golf hat kind of yeah like an old school golf hat yeah but it's kind of like folded down yeah like above it's the a samuel L. jackson hat but he wears them backwards remember he did that that was like his style yeah the is that king, not a newsboy or whatever that not a um, newsboy cap is that what that's called maybe I think we've, we're going too far down the rabbit hole probably yeah but um, those I feel like are like th- the version of the, uh, the hats that you're describing, like the modern version of the hats you're describing. Yeah, like uh, just a, qu- a little bit nicer than your run-of-the-mill like baseball cap. Yeah, like people would wear that to work if they were like in a suit. They wouldn't wear like a ball cap to work if they're wearing like a trench coat and, and a suit and a tie. Yeah. You know what I mean? They would wear something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Look at those hats. Yeah. these are So, yeah, we're thinking about newsboy hats. Yeah. Is that what they're called? Newsboy? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There's another thing that you know you people learned. There you go. I don't want you to say you people. <laughs> <laughs> LTLians. Um, but yeah. So. Bring back good hat culture. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, that's what we're trying to that's say. A shout out hat culture. <laughs> Are you wearing a hat right now? Because I'm wearing a fucking hat. I'm not. Hat. No. How can you say bring back hat culture if you're not wearing a fucking hat? Uh, well, I'll, starting with me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it back. Okay. So we're going to get into the movie here. Eric, let us know your thoughts. Was this literal, loose, or reimagined i think we have i'm gonna i'm gonna be quiet i'm gonna let you answer the question you could say i'm sorry i think i think it's gotta be reimagined right yes from from novella to from a novella film yeah each film right both films but film to film it's literal i would say so so what we're gonna do here is is talk about the talk about some of the inspiration from novella to film and then after that talk about the differences between films Stuff. So, just getting people's getting people ready, yeah, get their minds right. Yeah. So, uh, where to find the movie within Ivan Illich? Yeah. So, I, I think like what we talked about when we when we read this, you know, you're reading it to understand like how they made a movie out of it because it's very different. It's very interior. Um, it's really just the story of like one man going crazy in a room. Mm-hmm while people live life around him. Although there's a, you know, the scene where he dies in the beginning and people go to his wake, et cetera, et cetera. 
so how do you make a movie from this? How do you try to modernize it? So I think for me, um, the way it's written as it, the way it's written, the novella as it stands, can't be a movie. There's no movement. There's no visual language. Um, the change that occurs occurs internally. He has no way to like show what he has learned because he dies. And while in the novella that is like sad and affecting, I don't think you can make a film out of that. Mm-hmm. That's just not a movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. A movie needs to have things happen. The mm-hmm. act, the protagonist needs to like do things physically to get the story to move along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's moments for interiority and moments for like narration and whatever, whatever. But I think because that's the whole freaking plot yeah. is him realizing that he can rectify things, but doesn't, there needs to be an opportunity to like show that f- visually. So for me, the way to start is to understand that we can't just have him realize he can rectify things. That has to be our like very important character change that inspires action. And so for me, there can't be a movie unless the protagonist, whether it's in Akiru or in living sees how he's messed up his life and finds a way to rectify Mm -hmm. and basically this means well i guess we'll get into it but so Mm -hmm. for me that's like the building block to the story yeah figure out how you fucked up fix the fuck up yeah um from there we have to figure out where to join the narrative because that is one moment but you pick it up in that moment you pick Mm -hmm. it up before the moment the the novella is told from basically birth to death Mm-hmm. Although death starts and then we get like backstory and into his current and to his, his death. Mm-hmm. Um, here we kind of got to figure out where to jump in. And I think there's a, there's a moment in, and I guess I mentioned this already, but there's a moment in the novella where he gets married. He's this bachelor. He's loving life. He's doing whatever he wants. And then he gets married to this woman, Praskovia Fedorovna. Well done. Um, and, almost as soon as he gets married he like hates his life yeah um he goes from being this like guy that does whatever he wants to having someone at home who requires him to be around because Mm -hmm. that's what marriage is is, right um i don't think he was prepared for that so Mm -hmm. what he does is throws himself into his work Mm -hmm. and he throws himself into status and just like working real hard to making a lot of money to buying new things, to being sad about those new things, to buying better new things to earning 50,000 rubles. And it's, it's like the marriage that sort of inspires him to become this like worker bee Mm -hmm. that basically, um, is like his personality for the rest of his life. Right. It's Mm -hmm. just like, I don't want to be at home, so I'm going to be at work. And though we're having like kids and, those kids are having lives and getting married and all that. He's just like, this is not my story. My story is like being successful over here mm-hmm. and you, my family are just kind of slowing me down. Yeah. I didn't really even want this. Right. Right. Now that I have it, I thought it was good. It's definitely not. It's good. his form of independence. Yeah. So I, I think you somehow pick the narrative up in the moment where he is a worker mm-hmm. where he is in his working life. So whether that's like he's young. Yeah, you don't necessarily need all the backstory. Yeah. Of him being joyful and single and a bachelor and not having all these responsibilities. You can just sort of start right. 
in the thick of it the thick of the not depression but yeah his his working man's day-to-day mm-hmm. dull doldrum mm-hmm. um but you know for him it's it's not even necessarily dull because it's like it's what he wants to do but mm-hmm. what do you then your realization later is that what he's wants to do has been wrong and like wasted this whole time because yeah. it, it actually he forsake he had forsaken the important things in life for mm-hmm. the less important things right so hopefully that makes some sense i'm kind of like talking this through as we go no th- yeah it, i'm following um so from there i think i mean we keep talking about work life because i think this is the most important thing it's kind of the thing that the novella is saying which is like you sort of are wasting your life at work. Mm-hmm. You're wasting your life as like a, a servant to a larger entity, entity, or... government unit, whatever that mm-hmm. really doesn't care for you. Right. And in fact, the joke, the joke is on you because the moment that you die, these people beneath you just want to know who's going to fill your seat. Yeah. These people you thought were your friends, your family, whatever mm-hmm. your, your work buddies, they don't really care. Right. What they care about is like, Oh, well there's a vacant position. Mm-hmm who's going to get the raise. Right. And it just like continues the cycle, yeah. which is kind of a broken cycle. And it's kind of a tragic cycle because, um, if your re- realization is that working is your purpose. Yeah. But it's not. Or if working it, is working is what you like must do, mm. but you realize that you just wasted. Mm-hmm. and never found that. like a purpose. Yeah. All those people like climbing after your seat are also as diseased as you are. Mm-hmm. So there is like a, just like a, a wheel of like a hamster wheel of purposelessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's government. <laughs> and that's Good why thing. I vote Republican. <laughs> no, I was kidding. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think, I think work is the most important thing here Yeah, because it, it just tells you a lot. It's, it's soul sucking. You put in your time, mm-hmm. you put in your life and you get out money. And eventually he put in he put in even more effort than he originally thought because of his marriage. Yeah. If he hadn't been married, he probably would not have put as much thought and pressure into that and would have maybe pursued something differently. Yeah, I think you're right. It does influence his he gets married, he needs to make more money. Mm-hmm. He gets nice things, they're not as nice. He needs to get new things. Right. And it just like constantly needs more and more it's and more. It's perpetual, yeah. Yeah. And so he has to just keep climbing, 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 because this is the only way to get the life he thinks he wants. Right. And then at the end, he realizes it's not that. So um, I think you got to, obviously this is, that's to me, that's the heart and soul of this whole thing is just working mm-hmm. and how it can waste your life. Yeah. Um, maybe this is an argument for like universal base income. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh my God. I don't know what's in this. There's a lot in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to bring up was just like, I think it's important to have this character show this character's legacy. So we talked about legacy earlier and how there's more to it in the, like this story includes more than just legacy and includes like a final accounting of life. Mm-hmm. But I do think in a movie it's important to show after his death, cause I think you have to show the death after the death, what happens with these people that he's been leading for all this time? Do they just clamor for his seat? Do they, is he able to impart, is the lesson he learned imparted onto them at all? Do they take it? How do they feel about it? Mm-hmm. Um, what comes next? Because in the novella, he's whatever this like big time judge. Mm-hmm. Um, he has subordinates. He has people that look up to him theoretically. You're probably going to keep that. So if he has all these people under him, when he has this realization, 
it's probably going to affect his work because that's where he is. And so how do his workers respond to this person who has like a total rethinking of what work is and mm-hmm. can do for people? Mm-hmm. This is where I disagree with you. Really? Okay. So I don't think you need to have, you need to show his legacy. Like I know that, I know that both of these films did that, but wasn't there something like pretty poignant and and tragic about him realizing at the very last moment of his life, basically how he could fix it and then him dying. Isn't there sort of like a beautiful tragedy in that? How do you, sorry, go ahead. That's worth like, making into a, a film or making into a film here. How would you, how do you show that? That's my, that's my question. Yeah. Too. I mean, th- that's the difficulty. I mean, there, there, there's, would certainly be a way to show that. Um, I personally don't know what that would be, but you can bring, you can have moments of like interiority or internal realization from external, uh, things external moments right like um i don't know what an example would be i can't think of anything off the top of my head of what would translate to him think that but thinking that but you could certainly find something you could work out some ideas um i don't know yeah like he he wants to build this park this this is the plot of the films right? right and it fails and so he tries so hard I'm now I'm making up plot, but like he tries so hard to build this park and it fails and you just show him like realizing that all of this work he did forever and ever and ever was, it would be before that. It would be like the moment he realizes that he should make the park. And I don't remember that when, what moment that was in the movie, um, or either of those movies, but there's certainly that moment, right. Where he's like, I need to like do this kind thing for these people who we've been giving the runaround to. And then, like, the moment he starts doing that or he realizes he needs to do that, like, he croaks. I know it's dark and it's tragic, but it also has this, it has a similar message, like, don't waste your time. It has a, basically the same message as these movies do, but it's a little bit darker. Yeah. Yeah, because in these movies, so I think in both, the realization comes when he's getting drinks or dinner with the young co-worker his mm-hmm. young ex-co-worker at that point mm-hmm. where she has it's it's like post the rabbit scene where like in the in Ikiro, she's a toy maker and then mm-hmm. in living she plays the like claw amusement game and she gets a rabbit like out of the yeah. whatever claw game what does a white rabbit signify to drugs right like Jefferson yeah. airplane because <laughs> it was in both yeah i think they just took it in living okay just, I wasn't sure if it like signified something, but I was oh, like, I don't, it might very well might. Cause I like aren't mm-hmm. white rabbits, some sort of recurring theme or plot device. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Obviously I'm thinking of like magicians. It, well, you could do that. Yeah. That as well. But anyways, Alice in Wonderland, I suppose. I'll, let me Google it. Um, yeah. So I do think the, the movie, it almost does that because he has this realization and then he immediately goes and like finds the file to build the park that these women have been trying 
really hard to get made and they you know go from his apartment to another apartment to another apartment to another apartment to another apartment finally come back to him and he's like i still can't help you like just file Mm -hmm. it away right his realization is that oh what i can do is build the park and so he goes back finds that file and like walks out the door ready to build the park and then in both films it cuts to his wake so the only moment you really get is like i'm grabbing the file i'm doing this Mm -hmm. and then he dies so you don't you don't see him build the park right until you flash back from different people's perspectives to that's interesting show him doing it should you you do kind of get that you do kind of get that moment you're like oh my god he's dead he he ruined it yeah so initially you think like oh the the joy was in him it's just in the realization that's true um and then they just sort of extend the story yeah the story just kind of flips yeah it becomes a different story it becomes fractured and told through like various povs right right right. So there is a version of this where you just play it straight mm-hmm. and he just builds a park and then like you cut the ribbon and then I don't know, like a woman, like a girl dies, flies off the swing set and they're like, shut the park down. I don't know. <laughs> That's a totally different movie. <laughs> That's a very different movie. It comes like final fantasy. So, so white rabbits are symbolic of love, tenderness and inner power. Although rabbits are considered lucky animals, white rabbits in particular are symbolic of good luck and impending opportunity. In fact, white rabbits are considered so lucky in European cultures that it's transformed into a kind of blessing. So that, I guess, maybe it's symbolic of that. like Luck and blessing. Yeah. This okay. is your new opportunity. We'll learn you something. What's today. that? Uh, yeah. What's that Eminem song? One opportunity. One moment. It's an eight mile song. Did you capture it? And let it slip. Yeah. This is a good podcast. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Mom's spaghetti. He's nervous. Anyways. Yeah, yeah I, I get what you're saying. It does kind of it, it does kind of have that moment, but it continues on. Yeah, I don't. I maybe it's just because I watched the queue first. I just love how that ends, and we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's just to me, it's just so good. Yeah, it's just like it. It it almost is like the um uh um fuck Charleston Heston made what's the movie with the rise of the Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes the original the, the original yeah. where at the end of that movie he like has been traveling forever and comes back to a planet he doesn't realize it's earth until he sees the statue of liberty like buried in the sand he's oh like, yeah, yeah you idiots you blew it yeah, yeah and so it's this idea that sort of like they had all the information right he gave them the information this and then what they chose to do with it was like not ignore take it, it yeah ignore it. and so there's something i think tragic in that too um mm-hmm. but at least like as the main character he has something to do which is to realize how he can fix his own deal. And I suppose whether or not people take that Mm -hmm. and influence their own lives is a totally different thing. Yeah. But you're, I think it's important to at least give the protagonist that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause without it, it's kind of like half a story for sure. And you can do, I mean, with the novella, you're just like in his head the whole time. It's really, uh, at the very end, it's kind of like a flip and you don't even really, really know what the realization is. Right. It's sad because he seems primed and he seems like alive again. And then he just dies. Um, it is quite sudden. I think that is something that's not really done that often. The death is used as like a finality thing, but this is used as more of a device to sort of propel the narrative even further forward. Um, sort of like Game of Thrones kill the main characters yeah but um but yeah did you want to talk about the differences between the movies let's do it movies 
So the differences between um, living in Ikiru. So the use of the narrator, which is prominent um, and prevalent throughout Ikiru. Uh, and there is no narr- narrator for living. So talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah. So this, I think, is interesting because the the movies start differently. Uh, we're going to talk about in the next section the illness, but... Akiru starts with a narrator just explaining that our protagonist's stomach has a cancer in it. Mm-hmm. Like this is the, yeah. this is our protagonist. the stomach. first, yeah, first image. Um, and it's, it, it's just, it's very destabilizing. I, ke- I keep saying that word, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's very different than what yeah. you, it's not a straight opening. It's like, Hey, this guy is going to die. He doesn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Drama. Right. Um, but as, a, as the narrator, the na- I mean, really what does a narrator do? It kind of like pops in and out as it pleases to provide you information, context, um, tension. And what it really does is like talk about his body, mm-hmm. which is to say like things are going bad inside. Yeah. He doesn't know it yet, but he will. Yeah. And for a, a movie that a film that ends with a bunch of different POVs, remembering different things, the narrator brings its, its own POV. Right. It knows things that he doesn't know. And so it's a movie about like sort of fragmented remembrances of this guy. It's just another fragment that brings in some information that you want to know. But it's really like a kind of like forming a jigsaw puzzle because I think the movie is, Ikiru at least, is about figuring out who this guy is. Mm -hmm. Both movies are about figuring out who this man is. But Ikiru um, plays it in a much more like jigsawy way in which like there are like six people who just know a little bit about him and they all share their like one remembrance and together only together does it make like a full understanding of of uh what's going on Mm -hmm. so the narrator is just i think just an additional layer to that and it's um well so so, like narrators are kind of i don't want to say scoffed at but it's like uh Every time I hear of people talking about narrators, it's sort of a, a quote, lazy uh, plot device or, right, yeah. narrative device. Yeah. That is not, you don't really see it these days in films. So maybe it wasn't considered that back then, or maybe it was. I think it just has to be deployed in a way that, I, I think people rebel against it when it's, when it like subs in for acting or like Mm -hmm. a way to you, if you could tell a story without it, Mm -hmm. I think people rebel against it when it's a crutch, when it's like, uh, someone eats a bite of food and the narrator's like, and that was spicy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you could just show him like, you know, miming that it's spicy or whatever. That is a bad example perhaps. But like, yeah, I I get what you're saying. When you're, when you're taking away, the actor actress ability to do something or taking away like story that could easily be told straight mm-hmm. and you're just putting it in narration. People don't like that mm-hmm. because it's pointless. Right. But I think when you're, when you're like coming from the stomach or a different perspective, a perspective that you couldn't otherwise see, mm-hmm. or you're just like adding weird comedy to a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking yeah. of, the informant Matt Damon's narration in that where he like talks about like, you know, polar bears can't even see themselves. They're so white that like, you know, when they travel through the icy tundra, they're basically invisible to themselves. The only thing they can see is their black nose. 
do you ever think a polar bear like gets scared at its own reflection kind of thing is like what the narration is in that so i haven't seen that that's kind of a i don't know a, a trick to make him goofier or more mm. empathetic or whatever mm-hmm. but I, 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 yeah okay so I think you can use it, it it's just yeah, like yeah. so use it in the right way yeah you gotta you don't want to add you want to add you don't want to divide yeah or steal right or take away mm-hmm. okay anyway narrators uh the second one uh for the differences between living in ikiru is the doctor who informs um the main character that he has his stomach cancer and is going to die so in ikiru um that actually doesn't happen so he basically tells him he'll be fine just um what does he say get some rest you can eat whatever just eat within reason yeah he has a uh hernia no a uh, uh, ulcer yeah ulcer and he'll be fine just rest and it'll it'll resolve itself um and it's funny because he has this uh like really dumb look on his face like a, like a child and i was reading something before it's like uh the reason they did that is because they wanted the doctor to sort of uh, be portrayed as a parental figure to mm. uh, the main character. I'm forgetting his name now, but um, I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. But so it, that happens in Ikiru, and then in Living, the new film, um, he just tells him straight up, "You've got, you've got a cancer, and you've got six to nine months to live, basically." Um, so I guess it's an interesting difference. Um, one that doesn't necessarily change the narrative all that much because he realizes the severity of what's happening in both, but it's sort of a different, I thought when I was watching Akira, cause it was the last thing that I cons- the last art that I consumed here. Uh, I thought that was an odd choice to have him lie to him. Yeah. It's, it's played for laughs kind of, right? Kind of. Yeah. Because there's the, when he goes into the hospital, there's a guy who's basically like, Oh, your stomach hurts. They're going to tell if they tell you that yeah. it's an ulcer and that you yes. have whatever, it's really just stomach cancer and you're like in trouble. Yeah. And so that's why he has the kind of dumb expression, right? Cause he's listening and he's like, he's, Oh fuck. Oh, they're yeah. telling me exactly what that guy told me. They were going to tell right. me that's when right. they're bullshitting me. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's, it's funny and it's, it's weird. It is weird. He's trying to get away from him. It's kind of funny. Yeah. It's a funny scene. Yeah. So I don't know if that, I mean, of, of, like, you know, a reason you might do that is to actually sew in some doubt as to whether or not this person is really has stomach cancer or really mm-hmm. is going to die. But mm-hmm. it kind of goes out the window when you start the movie with like the x-ray of the guy's stomach, which is like, yeah, yeah. this is the cancer that's going to kill him. Yeah. You're very upfront. Like right. this guy's actually going to die. But then you right. have a scene later where the doctor's kind of like, don't worry about it, but it's just an ulcer. And the guy's like, okay, well, this is exactly what you would tell me if it <laughs> right. was stomach cancer. Yeah. So I think probably there's a more of a commentary on like the ineptitude of like the whole system writ large, mm-hmm. like whether it's a hospital or a government. Like a government, it's just like people are just doing, he's just telling everybody the same thing. Yeah. Oh, you're sick. It's just an ulcer. Yeah. Just take some fine. pills. You'll right, be fine. Right. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's not my problem. Yeah. yeah. It's just another guy passing the book. Another guy who kind of doesn't know what's going on. Another guy who doesn't care enough right to figure out what's going on yeah he did kind of act relaxed as well after he left he was going oh kind of lean back in his chair like it wasn't really concerned that he just lied to this guy and 
he knows he's going to be dying and within a year yeah but maybe maybe he does that a lot and maybe it's possible the cancer comes from like something deeper something like mm-hmm. i don't know it's post-war japan it could be like whether it's radiation yeah. or mm-hmm. just a general sickness that is going mm-hmm. around that's true i want to talk about that in a second so I, I think it's it's not impossible that he's just seeing he's just seeing a lot of people like he's not even he's he's lying because there's just a line of people who mm-hmm. have stomach cancer right he's just like let's 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 keep it going buddy yeah, yeah, yeah. like you got an <laughs> ulcer take these pills yeah you're you're, you're done anyways it doesn't yeah. matter okay maybe um let's keep moving here bloody handkerchief so this is a moment in living that is uh not any kuru yeah so in both movies he uh, the main character upon learning his diagnosis leaves his job goes to a bar and in living a coffee shop and meets up with this like novelist character mm-hmm. who's like, yeah, but you're, you're dying. We should, we should go live. Right. Um, and they go have like a wild night in living specifically at near the end of that wild night. He goes outside this like tent. It's like a tent party or like mm-hmm. a, like a circus almost mm-hmm. they're in. And he is missing and the novelist goes to find him and realizes he's been outside like hawking up blood mm. on a handkerchief mm-hmm. it's this moment that Kira doesn't give you but i think it just kind of like centers the idea that this guy really is gonna die mm-hmm. and he's really in not good shape yeah um and he's drinking and he's drinking making so you, it worse yeah so you can sort of see like the bad decision there yeah um like is, is this guy really helping yeah is this really living yeah because what it's really doing, what it's actually doing, and what they say is like it's killing you. It's yeah, making this, it's making it worse, perpetuating the the inevitable. Yeah. So in some in some in some way, it's sort of like the ending of the like bacchanalia, where he's like, well, what you should do is go like find women, just mm-hmm. drink a bunch, and that's how you live. Yeah. And then like that moment kind of ends all that. Yeah. Whereas I think in Ikiru, um, because that moment doesn't happen, it's just like. I don't know. Maybe yeah. you don't need a, a clear ending. He can just like fold himself into different things. Cause you know, yeah, I don't know if that moment fine. actually came. I'm trying to think of it. I, obviously he stopped drinking. He stopped going wild. Um, but I can't remember if there was a moment where he was like, uh, Oh, I need to stop doing this. But he, he does go home with a guy, the novelist, I think and two women in the taxi cab. Right. In that sounds right. Kiru. And I don't know if, I don't oh, know. He don't starts remember. singing. Or he was singing and then he leaves. No, that was before that. I can't remember. He definitely takes some women home and then he like runs out of the cab at a certain point and like runs through traffic. Oh yeah. He's drunk. It's kind of dangerous too. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I forget how the, it, it transitions from like yeah. drinking to then meeting up with his ex coworker who's mm-hmm. youth. So it goes from like party to like, Hey, you know, what's cool is your youth. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that this movie had a lot of uh like a lot of moments for like breathing like a lot of moments of silence where the funeral scene this is sorry, side note. Like Ikiru had it was fast paced at times, but it was also very slow at times. Where like they showed the funeral scene, I think it was like for a few minutes at least, where there was like no talking and they were literally just performing the funeral. 
Uh, and there were a few of those moments in the movie that I thought that's really interesting. It reminded me of uh, whatever movie I think Solaris, where they're driving for ten minutes. Or whatever. It was. What's your favorite movie of all time? I, I can tell. It might. Yeah, it's, it might be. Um, and then there was a scene where they're in like that jazz club, and the full frame is like the band up in the foreground, and then the background is like all the people smushed together. I th- I just like love that image. I don't know if you remember that. That was really cool. Um, I'm just nodding. I should say yes because we're podcasting. Yeah, they we, we don't have uh, cameras yet. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Spotify. But anyways, just wanted to mention all that stuff. But take it away. Park site. Okay. The next difference here is the site of the park that the narrative wants them to build. In Ikiru, it is, or sorry, in Living, it's described as a bomb site. And then Ikiru is described as a like sewage area. And I just wanted to mention this because what I did some research and what I, when I, what I learned was that it's a, Ikiru is post-war Japanese, but it's also very much like centered on Japanese, um, like, uh, what do you call it? Reconstruction. Salarymen and- no, like reconstruction. Oh, so it's oh, post-war. Wow. So it's the rebuilding everything, mm-hmm. They're rebuilding like physical spaces, they're rebuilding like the rules. There is part of their culture that's still like under some allied occupancy bureaucracy rules or yeah occupant whatever it is Mm -hmm. and um a lot of the public systems and a lot of this stuff is still like messed up Mm -hmm. and so the sewage area just sort of represents the ongoing struggle to get to like the modern japan like post-war japan is a mess until they figure it out and then like 80s 90s pachinko era mm-hmm. like things modernize really fast and japan is this like incredible like c- country now with a bunch of modern stuff but after the war they were torn apart yeah um and so this is a reflection of them rebuilding but it's also an important note that like people were getting sick and it was like an ever-present danger to be around some of these places that were just like cesspools. Yeah. And so that's why I brought up the like, maybe, maybe just a bunch of people were getting cancer because there was like radiation around maybe, or maybe. just like cleanliness was, was poor mm-hmm. as they were getting stuff like rebuilt. Mm-hmm. So like the, the setting is important in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think this, that's what the sewage area represented on the other side of things. Bomb site taken from that context, you can sort of understand like, okay, this is also post-war mm-hmm. London. Yep. It got shelled. Yeah. And there are just places, the same, similar concept really, that it, they needed to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And there were probably a load of bomb sites and a load of things that were destroyed. And what do you, how do you refill them? What do you, what do you do with, in these areas? Yeah, I think a sewage area or a sewage site for living wouldn't necessarily have the same um, impact as say like a bomb site something like that right um so it is it it is a nice change they sort of keep the continuity of a story by making this small change which which yeah i think it's probably better for a modern audience because i would not have without knowing without learning that there's no way i would have like picked it was just like oh it's just a sewage site That, that makes sense that could be right yeah but i wouldn't have picked up on the like nationalistic importance of mm-hmm. that detail yeah so that's something that i suppose gets lost in the 70 years since it came out right well, probably so yeah 
more modern. Yeah, well, you know. Um, and the next one is Miss Harris starts dating Mr. Wakeling. I feel like you don't like this. I don't understand this at all. <laughs> Why not? You need love. You set this up. I have listen, no idea what's listen. going on here. <laughs> listen, Mr. Um, what's his name? Williams. Mr. Williams. He formed a legacy by working hard and doing the right thing. And he's also a matchmaker. So how did this match come together? Um, they met at the funeral. Well, they were coworkers, right? And then they met again at the funeral. So and he was trying to ask her out at the funeral, which is, a, you know, kind of an odd place to ask somebody on a date. But remember this? When his son comes in, he was going to ask her oh, out. Oh, yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He was working up the courage. And then they have a moment. A lot of people are just having words in private, you know? That's weird. It's a weird thing. It is a weird, kind of weird, yeah. Um, I don't know. I I, I didn't hate it as much as as I I can feel from you, <laughs> your hatred towards it, hatred towards love. But yeah, it is kind of it is now thinking about it in the context of Ikiru as well as um the death of Ivan Illich. It is a a detour from the story. Yeah, maybe it's just it's just done to give them an inkling of happiness that no one in Akiru gets. Mm. Because as we'll discuss in a second with the ending, it's pretty it is pretty bleak and they don't really take the lessons that the protagonist offers. Mm-hmm. And so in this situation with these two fine people meeting and and you know falling in romantic head over heels love. Mm-hmm. I guess it is a good thing that came out of his role in the department. He helped in a certain way, bring them together mm-hmm. through his death. His mm-hmm. death brought two people together. That's literally what happened. Right. So maybe it's, maybe it is happy and maybe we should be happy and not everything has to be so bleak. <laughs> Are you happy? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. How, I, Does it know, feel kind of like a cop out? Like kind of like, like an eye roll. Yeah, I was just like, I don't need these people to be together. Yeah, you just have them be friends, and where everyone just moves on. You know, she quit yeah. her, she quit that job. She's a waitress, although she was supposed to be like assistant a general manager, manager or whatever. Or whatever yeah. and she just a waitress, and he still has that job. He still hates it, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. <laughs> Move. They can hate it together. <laughs> hate their jobs separately, <laughs> but be together. They're not together. Oh, in <laughs> they're not in their version. They are not together. They just hate their lives and nothing is good about their lives. Yeah. They don't get this nice this nice moment. Yeah. Well, I liked it. So you're a sap. <laughs> <laughs> and our next one is um our last one here is a reversal of the swing set slash office place scenes uh in Living versus Akiru. I think you're you probably take this one. Yeah, so the most the the, the famous moment from Akiru is this shot of um I think it's Ken. I think it's Kenji Watanabe. Kanji. Right. Kanji Watanabe. Mm-hmm. He, uh, the guy, the protagonist, after he builds the park, he, a policeman sees him alone in the park on the swing set in the snow. And he's just like sw- swinging, singing um, the song, uh, Gondola no Uta. Gondola no Uta. Mm-hmm. And then in Living, it's a, like, rowan something mm-hmm. uh old scottish song the rowan tree um they're just sitting in the swing set 
singing that song which is like a a meaningful song about youth past and Mm -hmm. all that stuff um and after that i'm really setting this up bad (laughs) so in ikiru that scene comes first it's it's like a, a moment where the main character sits and is like i finally this is your accomplishments moment yeah, right. he sits there and he's happy mm-hmm. but he's like kind of it's kind of bittersweet at the same time but it's ultimately a happy moment yeah and then after that all of the men who have been trying to figure out if he had cancer and knew he was going to die when he got inspired to do all this work which is really out of character for him mm-hmm. are like you know what we should be more like him when we get back to work on monday we're going to kick butt and we're going to do our best and we're going to remember his teachings and we're gonna we're gonna be better we can't let his life live uh die in vain yeah and in akiru you know what they do (laughs) like another basically the same project comes back in the guy that took over the protagonist's job is like just file it away we'll get to it um one of the characters stands up and is about to say something and be like bro like Like we just made this pact yeah and then he like looks at the guy they look at each other no one says anything he sits back down but he sits back down under a huge pile of paperwork that's just like you're never getting out of this. Yeah, yeah. You're like really stuck here. Um, so that's how that ends. And it's really good because mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of it, the, it like lands the joke for me, which mm-hmm. is like, here's the moment for the protagonist to understand his legacy, mm-hmm. even though it's small or whatever. He's finally happy. His coworkers realize that mm-hmm. and are like, Hey, we should also be like that. Right. And then immediately they don't, right. They aren't like that when they have a chance to preach, or practice what they preach they don't Mm -hmm. in living the office place scene comes first Mm -hmm. which is like a weird like narrative shift in which they like come back from the wake instead of talking about him at the wake they kind of talk about him on on the the train train. to work they get back to work they immediately like throw away their what they said they were going to do and then the young guy, Mr. Wakeling goes to visit the park, runs into the cop mm-hmm. who's like, Hey, I saw him sitting here and they flash back and he's like, Oh, mm-hmm. that's good. I kind of, yeah. So you lose the landing of the joke. Yeah. In living. It's, it's less poignant. Um, but I think it's, they're two different stories. Like, or I mean, they have two different, um, they resonate differently. Yeah, they're two right. different feelings at the end of the movie. Like, yeah. Ikiro is more like kind of funny, but also kind of sad. And then Living is more happy. Yeah, it's more of a happy ending. Yeah. I would say. Well, Mr. Wakeling gets the girl, and he gets to see. Uh, he bags his chick. His boss swinging on a swing set <laughs> in the snow. Quiet. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. I think that's probably what it is. I think it's like a, a happiness because, you know, you the last thing you see is like the happy moment. Right. And then he, the Mr. Wakeling walks on versus the last thing you see being this, like I'm stuck. Yeah. Like I'm stuck here forever until I get like called by heaven to die. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends on what you want. Like, are you looking for that, that poignant, like hit on the nail on the head or are you looking for something a little more cheerful? Because it depends on what state of mind you're in. You go. <laughs> I'm I'm the first one. If you're having a tough week, you might want to watch Living. If you're a little bit more grounded, I, yeah, I don't think you can watch bleak stuff all the time. But yeah, I think I like I like bleak. Yeah, it makes me feel bad. <laughs> 
Do you like that? Do you like to feel oh, that's bad? That's what I like about movies. <laughs> I like to feel pain and misery. Yeah. Yeah. Much like Ivan Illich, who just feels pain all the time. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I just like the profundity of the um, Akiru ending better, where it's just yeah. like, we're going to do this. No, no yeah. we're actually not going to do this. I just made me, I don't know. I felt more than I felt in living. You should probably talk to somebody. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> cool. Um, was the adaptation successful? I think for living from Akiru, I, I, well, uh, no, because okay. I didn't like the ending. There you go. I think they, they you just didn't like, like you didn't like the love. I didn't like the love with Mr. Wakeling and I forget her name. Yeah, Miss Harris. And Miss Harris. And you didn't like I didn't like the happy ending. The ending. They also just copied all of it. I mean, yeah, they yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So these differences are like pretty slight as far yeah. as differences. It was pretty cut and dry like very similar. Yeah. And very it's similar. also difficult to do so the like, We've done a bunch of literal recently. Yeah, we have. Women talking. What was one before that? I that was literal too. Yeah. Why knows literal yeah i just like if if this moment in cinema is so important and you just like steal it for your movie seven years later like that kind of sucks well he didn't steal it he reshaped it well kind of there was no yeah. like jungle gym he had to look through but he they, he was on the swing set singing a, a scottish version of the same song yeah thinking about the same thing would it would it have upset you more if he if the director had basically copied the ending if he had reversed those scenes, if he had gotten rid of the love story and then reversed those scenes where Mr. Wakeling dies or, you know, sits back down in his uh, pile of pile of papers. Yeah, probably would have been. I probably would have hated it more. Yeah. Because like it's it's a copy, right? It's like, a, yeah, you're doing the same thing. So maybe this is slightly better because at least he had a vision to switch things mm-hmm. and then add something. Mm-hmm. And there's also... Uh, Mr. Williams gives Mr. Wakeling like a book with a note that basically says like, Oh yeah. Whenever you're sad about working at this place, just remember we did a small good thing once and you could always do that again. Yeah, sure. It's funny how we did that for Mr. Wakeling and not the rest of the people. He didn't even know Mr. Wakeling. He I know. For like one half day. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. He probably, he probably get tell that, or he probably did that because he knew he wasn't corrupted yet or he wasn't like set in his ways yet maybe yeah he was yeah the thing do you think this is like a no-win situation to make this make any kind of like clearly not i mean he got a academy award out of it yeah nomination i was thinking about this earlier today it's kind of funny how we're like okay with some stuff and not okay with others like you can make batman forever and no one would care but like you can't remake old boy yeah can't remake this i guess you you can't they did but yeah you know i wonder like I don't think I guess people aren't mad about this, but yeah, because it was good. I I wonder if it were bad, and also it's a different title. I don't think a lot of people know about this. Like I don't think that it's based on. I don't think they know that it's based on Akira, and I don't even think they know it's based on a novella by Leo Tolstoy. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah, I just I think most people think oh this is a nice whatever 1950s story about a British man. Like I don't think they understand the context. I mean, obviously, cinephiles and like people who watch uh, 
old movies will know, but like I feel like most people probably don't. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I think you're probably right. So it's 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 harder to remake a classic. Although this is technically a classic, but it's like how many how many people have watched it? Contemporary people, I guess. Percentage wise, ten percent. Yeah, probably less. Probably less. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example of like. I need a. I need rules. Like they're talking about like there remaking no Harry Potter. And what? Like, what? What are we doing? <laughs> well, haven't they already kind of? I mean, Fantastic Beasts is like. I guess it's like an offshoot. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what's like? What's an example of a of a movie that you were upset that they remade? Uh oh, jeez. I don't know. I don't have an example off the top of my head. Yeah. I'm just thinking if just the the doing this at all taking a it's movie risky. that's like decently to little known but like a, I feel like it's a risky. top tier version of that it just yeah it it is risky yeah you kind of had to hit on all cylinders like you had to hit the screenplay you had to hit the actor and you kind of had to hit the director like you just had to hit maybe it's just because it's not american you can do it Maybe. Like, if you were to remake Casablanca, people would probably fry you. Probably, yeah. Probably. But because this is not American, you just make the American version of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's different enough just because it's... Or whatever, English version of it. Mm-hmm. Also, probably because it's a foreign language. Yeah. Like a, you mentioned before, that makes it a little bit easier to remake it. Um, yeah. Just some thoughts. All right cool um and did we like the movie i think it's a resounding yes for one of them yeah i liked both of them i like uh would you rate it on letterbox i haven't really i have not yeah, rated it I was yet gonna say i haven't seen it i'm so behind on all these fatty arbuckle <laughs> movies like yeah watching. my god what if if i were to t- if i were to read out eric's most recent like past week yeah he's been going on with like uh some of the most weird i can pull movies i've ever i've ever even heard of were you do you know who Fatty Arbuckle is? No. Okay. Well, why, why should I should I know that? No. Well, he was like the original movie star. Was he? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there's a very famous uh, trial that he was in in 1921. I don't listen. I don't watch movies or read about culture that's pre 2000. It is more than 100 years ago, actually. Yeah. Oh, pre 2000. <laughs> yeah. He. You've heard of the Hayes Code? No. Okay. Anyways, I liked <laughs> I liked Ikiro. I probably like living a little bit more just because a little more cheerful. And Ikiro was. God damn it! I okay. gotta. I I feel yeah. like Ikiro is something I have to watch multiple times to really appreciate it. Yeah. Because I was, I feel like I wasn't fully engaged. That's fair. But I watched it first. So I was the most engaged, and then I got progressively less engaged. It's it's funny. I've been going to theaters more often recently, and I feel like I'm way more engaged in a movie theater than I am oh, like, yeah. in my in my apartment. Yeah, because I'm like looking at my phone, whatever, yeah. and miss things. And like I don't know, I've just been like tar. I watched in a movie theater by myself. Incredible, like one of the best experiences I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> I don't know what this is about me, but it was amazing. No, I like solo movie theater trips. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, hot takes. Um, I'll go first. You're not a hipster unless you have a Criterion subscription, and we do. So, there if you, you go. need the subs, let me know. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> we can split it. Eric, 
uh i don't even know why i thought of this matthew mcconaughey could never have made this movie because he never stops l-i-v-i-n wow <laughs> so with the matthew it would be a, wow yeah. living i don't know could you imagine matthew mcconaughey in this role no <laughs> it would be wrong because you know it would be a comedy version. he's very present yeah he's very present that's yeah. for sure bill nye is good um i really like the guy from akiru who i think is fairly yeah, famous yeah. and i think he was in godzilla and some other movies oh really okay um yeah, big he fan was of him. very he was very expressive yeah i liked him a lot okay movie or book i have in this order living akiru illich that could change that was just i'm probably offending a lot of people by saying that but i have akiru that's the way I felt. illich and living i don't even remember writing this but i feels right <laughs> <laughs> you're blacked out i did i mean i liked illich i did like a, i liked all of these yeah they were all they're good. all good yeah if you want to consume any of them consume all of them yeah and what will we remember most i i kept thinking this in the theater the lighting of living is incredible mm-hmm. like the stage lighting and the mood of every set i've never actually thought about this until this movie like i'm not an expert on stage lighting by any means but it was just so interesting noticing it and then like looking at looking at it through that lens throughout the movie was like just kind of enlightening um so shout out whoever the lighting that person is i when i first started watching it i was like oh my god is this in technicolor mm. i was like did i pick the wrong <laughs> i rent the wrong movie <laughs> oh no and then it normalizes but yeah, yeah uh yeah and even when they're in like bars and rooms and stuff the it's lighting is very, all yeah it is good it's really good it's good so all right hmm. you're welcome just yeah you should rewatch it hmm. you know what I'm saying? yeah what about you oh uh just the quote from the novella that i already mentioned it was all done with clean hands in clean linen oh, nice. with french phrases i don't know i just love that's, that so much that's a great line there was a lot of uh like french stuff in the novella yeah. a lot of like french language mm-hmm. um le phoenix de la femme yeah la famille. yeah they went to see a french opera uh obviously this quote a lot of like there was like i feel like a more of a sharing of cultures in mm. russia before a certain revolution and certain people took it over but you know it was, do I, I don't know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> did that happen i don't know <laughs> cool um we are gonna sign off here thank you for listening this far if you've made it this far um check out our most recent episode on women talking and then keep an eye out for our next episode apostrophe s apostrophe on daisy jones and the six and a bonus episode and a bonus episode on the oscars which we're about to record we're about to record right after this oscars are tomorrow night so we're gonna make our picks um so sing along you know sing along <laughs> it's it's pretty late at night listen yeah. listen along listen along if sing you, if you if you want the deets if you want the download on who's gonna win we know like we actually we do know we got inside information. Will Smith told me. <laughs> right before he slapped him. Yeah. <laughs> when he slapped me, I actually forgot everything. <laughs> but I remember, so don't worry. Yeah. Um, any shout outs? Um, shout outs to Ivan Illich. He's yeah. the illest, right. illest Illich that there there is. R.I.P. Yeah. Shout out to Tolstoy. He, he's dead too, but. He is dead too. But it was. All um, the greats are dead. I would read another Tolstoy. Would you read? Would you ever read *Crime and Punishment*? No. 
I know. Oh no, that's the Dostoevsky. It's a oh, war, war and Peace. Yeah, War and Peace, probably not. What about Anna Karenina? That's just as big, I think. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't like big things. You like small things. Yeah. You know, I was thinking this is like so late, <laughs> but what I was thinking the other day is like, I would love to plan out my reading life, like the next forty years. Just be like, all right, next, like, just pick a big book right and every year just say like all right 2025 is like oh the anacrinina or anacrinina year interesting and just like go around that that'd be cool and like like pick it up throughout the year yeah just like no this is the year i'm reading this you don't have to make the decision oh my god i should do that for infinite jest yeah i think the thing about infinite jest is that you you should never read it yeah and you should just have it with you it's that is kind of like the thing around it. Yeah, it gets. We just. <laughs> What's well, all? It's a lot of Two footnotes. In a row. <laughs> it's a. It's written in. There's a lot of footnotes in an infinite jest. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's a lot of like looking and then like flipping a bunch of pages. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So. Take a picture. Tune to that. Not really. I think it's just better to own it and to have someone come by like, oh, infinite jest, and then judge you for having <laughs> for infinite jest. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like that's better. Yeah. Anyways. Good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Uh, We will see you next time.